If you have your Bibles today, please open them up to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. We'll be reading through and studying through verses 15 through 21. Many people, especially in modern times, have positioned our sense of faith and belief as sort of an anti-logic and against reason. It's not so much that they're against, but they're sort of on a separate plane of existence from them altogether. This isn't just people who think that logic and reason are terribly important, but even people within the faith talk like this. We have songs that proclaim things like this. We have even other groups, and we would call them sects, and we would say that they are heretical, that believe things like this. If you've ever talked to a Mormon, you can point to them to all of the mistakes that there are in the Book of Mormon. And they are numerous, and they are well known. And you can ask them, how can you rectify the fact that there are all these mistakes in this book with what you believe to be true? And their answer used to be, well, I have a burning in my bosom. I probably don't use the word bosom anymore, but they would say, I have a feeling that it's true, that there's something that leads me to believe that this is true, that I can't quite avoid. We're not just looking down on them. We have the exact same thing. We can sing songs that ring with quotes like, You ask me how I know he lives? He lives inside my heart, right? So we we have songs that talk like that. He lives inside me. This is how I, I know he lives. Now, that's not all wrong. It's not all bad. But it's not all that we talk about. And you'll notice how different this is as we connect this back to even the things that we're studying in our community groups and in Sunday school, how different this is than Anselm. So what we've done in modern times is we've taken something that is needing to be proved to us. And if we can't prove it to ourselves with reason and in logic, then we say, well, I just believe. I don't need reason and logic. But Anselm works exactly the opposite. And the scholastics worked exactly in the opposite way. What they would say is, no, 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 the faith is true. What we have been handed is true. Now let us show you how it is reasonable and how it is good and how it is logical that we believe in these things. As we come then back to this incident at Antioch in the book of Galatians, we find Paul upbraiding Peter for his pulling back from the Gentiles and not eating with the Gentiles anymore. Peter had formerly eaten with them and he had sat down with them at meal. He, he was already in Galatians 1, or excuse me, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, affirming that the Gentiles did not have to have circumcision to be full-blooded members of the body of Christ. And he reaffirms that even as he goes to Antioch and he begins to exist there in Antioch where there would have been for the, really the first time a great deal of Jews and Gentiles eating and living together in harmony under Christ. And eventually there is word that comes to him from people sent by James of this circumcision group. And for whatever reason, Peter is afraid of something. And he begins to pull back and Paul upbraids him for this. The quote that begins for most of you in verse 14 likely continues all the way through verse 21. What Paul is going to confront Peter with is not simply that you need to believe what I tell you to believe, but Paul is going to argue and reason and logic, use logic, to prove the point that you cannot trust in works and trust in Christ. That is the goal of not only these verses, but of all of Galatians. So, kind of to to give a a more general view of the book of Galatians, because we are going to be, as a programming note, we're going to be taking about four weeks off of Galatians during the Christmas season. We will come back to our study in Galatians on the 31st of December. But until then, 
as we've talked about these verses being central, I, I want to make clear just how central these verses are to the entirety of the book of Galatians. You can break down most of Paul's books into two different sections, and almost all of them work this way. One is sort of theological, and the other one is practical. He says, this is what you must believe, and then he turns around and says, now this is how you must live. You can see this very clearly in books like Romans. So the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is very much, this is what you ought to believe, and then 12 and beyond are very much, this is then how you ought to live. This is a very clear-cut way of kind of dividing books in half. And it's true even in books like Romans where there isn't a confrontation happening. It doesn't appear as though there's any sort of problem in Rome that Paul is addressing, but he is writing them a letter just telling them what they ought to believe. The same is true for the book of Colossians and, and the book of Ephesians. That here in the book of Galatians, there's a real confrontation happening and there is an argument that's going on. That argument continues until about 5-6. So it's started already and it will continue until about 5-6. Now, these verses that Paul is quoting from his confrontation to Peter are likely not an exact quote. Just like if you came home and you had a fight with somebody at work and your wife said, what was the fight about? You wouldn't get out your notepad and read to her verbatim what he said. He said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. He said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. Right? You would summarize, condense incredibly down what the argument was about. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. But because the situation in Antioch is similar in every respect to the situation in Galatians, what we would expect then is Paul's argument to Peter is replayed for the Galatians. And that's exactly what we will find. That these small verses, especially from verse 17 and down, are expanded like those little dinosaurs that your kids get that you put in water and they puff up. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's dipping this argument into water and it's expanding through chapters 3 and 4 and all the way into 5. These same, the same argument is being replayed for the Galatians. It's being filled in considerably. It's being adjusted for context so the Galatians are not Jews and so Paul is helping them to understand nature, the nature of the law and other things. But this, these verses are incredibly central to everything that Paul is going to argue. And it is an incredibly logical argument. It is a reasonable argument. We shouldn't think that what Paul is doing here, though, is saying that justification only in Christ is true. He's not arguing for that. We can tell because the initial position is we all know that this is true. We all know that you can only be justified by Christ. That is where he starts. That's not where he finishes. That is the beginning of the argument. Peter, you know this to be true. We know this to be true. The Galatians likely know this to be true. The agitators who have confronted the Galatians with circumcision also, simply by reason, likely know that this is true. What Paul is attempting to do then is not prove that justification is only in Christ, but to show that justification cannot be mixed. Justification in Christ cannot be mixed with any work. You cannot think that you need to do anything else besides believe in Jesus Christ to have faith and to be justified before God. They are like oil and water, which no amount of emulsifier will ever bring together. They will always be separated in the end. You either truly believe in Christ for your justification or you are justified by your works, but you cannot be both. It is what logicians might call not magicians, logicians, would call mutually incompatible. These things are mutually incompatible. You cannot trust in Christ and think that you can provide anything toward your justification. 
So as Paul unpacks this, he begins with this idea that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. Again, verses 15 and 16 that we talked about last week point us at this. He says, we were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We were people inside the covenant that the covenant was given to, not people outside the covenant who are by nature de facto sinners. We were not them. And even more than that, we were people who were defined by works of the law, not just any old Jewish people, but we were people who actually went after and sought after the law, tried to fulfill the law with everything we had. And still, Peter, you and I have come to the conclusion, we realize that we can only be justified by faith in Christ. Paul, at the end of verse 16, quotes from Psalm 143, which I thought was providential until I copied down the wrong verse this morning. So it's not actually providential, kind of is. I didn't know that I had done that. But nevertheless, he quotes from Psalm 143, where he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. No flesh will be justified in your sight. No living being will be justified in your sight. He says, we know this, and therefore we have sought to be justified only in Christ. Paul will then go on to prove how this stands against, and he wants to reason with Peter about how this stands against the issue of pushing for people to be circumcised. He begins by declaring first that we are all sinners. We are all sinners. Verse 17, we'll read the whole section of um, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth, And not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In verse 17, Paul affirms, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. It's the beginning of a rhetorical question, but we need to see that that is indeed what Paul is asserting, that we are found to be sinners. This word here of found to be sinners likely is referencing back up to 11 through 14, where we know that Peter is afraid of eating with the Gentiles. The issue is that if you eat with the Gentiles, you're like the Gentiles. Those Gentiles who in verse 15 were Gentile sinners. He is afraid of being lopped in with the Gentiles. He's afraid that he is going to be seen outside of the law with the Gentiles. And Paul's point is, who cares? You already are outside of the law. You live as a Gentile. You don't live as a Jew. You don't live a life under the law. So why do you care if people think that you're a sinner outside of the law? He says, are we found to be sinners. Notice the two there. We too were found to be sinners, just like the Gentiles. That rhetorical question clearly deserves an answer of yes, that they are indeed sinners. They are indeed already under the curse of the law.
the way that Paul actually frames this seems like it's, it's in reference to what he has already said in verses 11 through 14. So in that situation, remember, the issue was Peter was eating with Gentiles and then he pulled away from the table. The word here is servant of sin. It's the same word that we use for deacon. And it's often used for people who serve at a table. Okay? So he's saying when, when, when you were being fed Gentile food, when they brought pork or lobster to you and they sat it down in front of you, was Christ not only giving you food, but was he also making you a sinner? The, the actual issue is, do you become a sinner when you sit down with Gentiles to eat? And the answer is obviously and clearly no. Peter can't affirm that. He knows that he is a sinner, but Paul has to re-up that. He needs to reaffirm that for Peter. And indeed, we need it reaffirmed to ourselves. We are all sinners. We all need the grace of Christ. None of us can stand on our own. What's more, especially because of the way that Peter is acting here, we need to understand that we are all sinners. That doesn't just mean that we get to come to Christ for our salvation. It also says something very specific about how we are to relate to one another. We, again, as we read through those historical writings, we, we read through the Benedictine rule. Right? And one of the things that Benedictines thought, one of the things that people who went to monastic life thought, was that they could get holier by moving out of life. If they pulled away from other people, that they could make themselves holier by sequestering themselves from all of the filth in the world. The problem is, rightly understood, that could possibly be true. Wrongly understood, you think that sin is something that's out there. You think that dirtiness and uncleanliness before God is something that's out there, but it's not. Sin travels with you because it's in you. This is the common confession of Christianity. Jesus says this in Matthew 15, verses 17 through 20. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. But these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You don't become clean by by making sure that you are clean on the outside, by making sure that your cleanliness is not being defiled from outside. Jesus says very clearly, what defiles you is your own heart. Because of this, we can't think that when we gather together that we are somehow escaping the sin of the people on the outside because sin travels with us. We come together and we are a congregation of sinners. So we should expect that sin is in our midst even while we press for holiness, we cannot forget the fact that all of us are sinners. Because of that, we will have to bear with one another's sins. Because of that, we will have to put up with the failings of one another. And we will do so gladly because it reminds us of the grace of Christ on our own lives, that we ourselves were sinners. And those who are forgiven much must likewise forgive much. We are all sinners. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Luke 7, What then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking and you say, Look at him, 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. People can't be pleased, he says. John the Baptist was an austere man. He he didn't dabble in anything, and you complained about him, that he was too austere. And so the Son of Man comes, and he eats and he drinks, and he's friends with all these people that you don't like, and you say, oh, he's too loose. He's a drunkard and a tax, or he's a drunkard and a sinner. Mark 2. As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it, and he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We too are reminded today that we are sinners. And it is good that Christ knew that it wasn't reclining, it wasn't pulling back, it wasn't removing himself from the filth of the world that would ever cleanse the world, but it was him giving himself to the world that would do that. We are sinners. Paul goes on to say, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Did Christ make you sinful? Certainly not. He goes on then in verse 18 with this metaphor which is difficult. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, what is being rebuilt and what was torn down? What was torn down was likely the law as a mode of justification. That The clear rejection in verses 15 and 16 was the idea that Jews were any better off because they had the law. And so Peter has torn that down. He shook Paul's hand. He tore it down. And remember, Peter hasn't flipped his convictions on this. He was play-acting. He, he was a hypocrite, but he didn't change his mind. And so Peter has tore that down. It reminds me of a passage in Ephesians where Paul uses a word that's very, very similar to a word he used here. In Ephesians two thirteen through 15, Paul writes this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, that is, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He broke it down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Peter has broken down that wall. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile now because the law has no standing in faith with Christ. This is why in Antioch, they were likely first called Christians because they needed a name that would combine the fact that there were not just Jewish believers here. They were no longer Jews and they weren't really Gentiles, but there was a whole new kind of person. They were Christians. Paul says that, listen, because you tore it down, if you start to rebuild it and you start to say, listen, the law actually has a place here. People actually do need to become Jewish in order to be fully accepted by God. He says, you are establishing that you have come back to the law. And because that has already been affirmed, that you cannot be justified by that, you are a sinner. We are all sinners, but two Sinners will all die. Sinners will all die. In verse 20, or excuse me, in verse 19, Paul says, For through the law, I died to the law. Perhaps it should also read, Because of the law, I died in the law. 
there is no chance that the law allows for us to escape death. Throughout all of Scripture, we have this incredible conviction that it is sin that brings death. We get it immediately in Genesis that there is a perfect life to be lived by Adam and Eve, but God says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that you are not to eat, you will die. They eat of it, and immediately what happens? Do they immediately die? No, but it's clear in the chapters that come after that that death is part and parcel of their failings. But what does happen, God immediately clothes them. They are shamed before him. They look down and they see their nakedness and they are ashamed. That theme of nakedness throughout the entire rest of the Bible is a shame, not about body image. It's not fat shaming or anything like that. But what it is, is an acknowledgement that you are sinful before God. And what does God do immediately? He clothes them with animal furs. There is a death that hides their shame. Immediately they are expelled. Cherubim stand at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, blocking them from ever coming back in. Once we get to things like the law, the law has time and time again, the atonement that is made, the way in which God and man are brought back together is always through death. Sin always has to have death as its end. Leviticus 16, 14 through 19. Aaron is supposed to put on garments. He is going to make atonement for people. He needs to cleanse himself and he needs to start killing things. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side. And on the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in the front and the center of the mercy seat. In verse 18, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the people of Israel. There is death and there is blood because that is the only way that sin can be paid for. We have this time and time again in Ezekiel 18, 31 through 32. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. What happens with transgressions? He says, why do you keep committing transgressions? You will die. If you keep sinning before me, you will die. Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Stop being wicked. Stop being sinful and you will live. Sin leads to death. Romans 6, 23, The wages of sin is death. We always end up Dying. Listen to Galatians even later in 3.10. Cursed be everyone. Cursed be an indication of death, spiritually dying and being cut off from before God. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. You are cursed if you do not carry out what the God's commandments call you to carry out and that cursing becomes nothing more than death. You die forevermore. If we are all sinners, 
then we all must die. But you'll notice that even here, Paul only mentions this because there is a a hint of good news. Notice what he says at the end of verse 19. For because of the law, I died in the law. The law was no salvation for Paul, but the law reminded him of his sin, and so he died in the law. He died to the law so that I might live to God. Well, how is that supposed to work? Paul explains that in verse 20. Whilst we are all sinners, and sinners will all die. Third, sinners can die with Christ. Notice what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul, by believing in Christ and trusting in Christ, is unified to Christ. And we share in Christ's death. Throughout Scripture, we find that there are always sort of two types of death. There, there is this sort of wasting away of our own bodies as, as our spiritual lives have, have been decayed and we've been taken away from God. God allows us a measure of grace to continue to live, but our bodies break down. Eventually, our bodies will fully break down and we will die. But this is not the only type of death that there is in Scripture. In Luke 12, 4 through 5, we read this. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That is a second death. In the book of Revelation, we get a literal picture of that second death. Or at least the words literal, or at least the word second death comes up in verse 13 of chapter 20. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. There will be a resurrection. Everyone will be resurrected. But some to eternal damnation, others to life. But there is a death that will take place while our bodies waste away. There is a way of speaking of us already being dead, yet we will eventually die. But what sinners can do, who call upon Christ, they can escape that death by dying with Christ. As we read later on in chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ has become a curse for us. That which we have deserved, Christ has taken on in himself. And Paul says, I have died with Christ. The death that he owed, Christ paid, and therefore he has already died in Christ. The death that is coming for us all. The death that is waiting for us all, Paul says, I might die in the body, but I have already died in Christ. And if that is true, then number four is true as well. If we participate with Christ in his death, we will participate with Christ in his life. Sinners can live with Christ. In Romans 6, 5 through 8, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Paul here says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He has been resurrected already with Christ. He now lives truly before God. One book over in Ephesians 2, we have the exact same sentiments given by Paul. You were dead, he says in Ephesians 2, in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You are alive before God only because you are found in Christ. Because Christ has died the death you owe, and in him, as you are united with him in faith and in trust, you are also united with his life in his resurrection. Sinners can die with Christ, but sinners can live with Christ as well. We are reminded not only of that, but we shouldn't think that this is a mechanical procedure either. We can talk in a logical term and in reasoned term and sort of dry out exactly what's going on here. We can make it seem like this is simply a key to unlocking the mysteries of life and unlocking a life before God as though this were some sort of dry monetary exchange. But listen to how Paul then talks. He says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He, he says that it's not just that Christ is living in me, that his resurrection is part and parcel of who I am, but my life is lived for Christ. Everything that I do, I live by faith in the, in the Son of God. His life is now directed and guided by that faith. It's no longer guided by his worldly passions. He's no longer guided by his zeal for the law. He's no longer guided by the pull of the flesh, but he is guided by his faith in Christ. But it's not just his faith in the Son of God. It's not dry. Listen to how Paul talks about this. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Nowhere else in all of Paul's writings, and we have a lot of Paul's writings, does he ever speak like that? He speaks of Christ dying for the church. He speaks of Christ dying for us and for you. But this is the only place he ever speaks about Christ dying for him. And I think that this kind of stuff can be well overblown. We're so individualistic that we want to think, and people say, frankly, stupid things like, if you were the only person in the world, Christ would have died for you. You were not the only person in the world and Christ didn't just die for you. It's a hypothetical that has no bearing on anything at all. But that does not mean that he didn't die for you. It does not mean that he didn't give himself for you. This is no mere exchange. This is no just base logic that lacks any sort of emotive center. God loves you and he gives himself for you. Christ left the eternal glories of heaven so that you might be united to him in faith. The great gift of participation here in Christ's life and death comes only by an act of God. It is what God the Father himself does. 
It is not achieved by anything else. It's not achieved by you becoming Jewish. It's not achieved by you following the law. It's not achieved by any sort of work that you do. It is only because of pure grace and unmerited favor and gift that he gives this to you. Acknowledgement of these things as gracious, as a gift given by faith, means we can't claim it as our own. That's the whole basis of the idea of a gift. Recently, as Christmas comes closer, I was tooling around Amazon, as everyone else in the world does. And I, I love racing games. It's a, it's a problem that I have. I, I love racing games, and I was, I was looking around Amazon to try and find, like, a gaming wheel to use because the thumbstick's no, not working. And I found some amazing ones on there. They have gaming wheels, literally for an Xbox, that cost $1,500. That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You guys are thinking, I know what to get past her now. So, um... <laughs> That's more than my car, and my car will actually take me places. That, that, is, that is a crazy amount that people actually spend. And so if I, if I went to my daughter and I said, listen, this is what we're going to do. I need a gift for you or from you for Christmas. And I, I come up with the right idea. So here's my Amazon password. Here's my credit card number. If you would go buy me that gift, that'd be great, right? And so she's going to go and she'll buy me that $1,500 gaming wheel. We know very well that that's not a gift from her because she didn't buy it. It wasn't her idea. It wasn't her that made it happen. I led her through the entire thing. If I was the one who was doing it, if I was the one who bought it, if I was the one who earned it, it wasn't her that was giving a gift. As I opened that thing on Christmas morning, no one would call that a gift, and frankly, my wife would have a lot of other words to call it. (laughs) But it's not a gift. She didn't give it to me you will nullify the grace of the gift by thinking that you earn any part of it. God will not take boasting before himself. God has freely given us Christ as a gift that we trust in him. We can't earn it through the law. You can't earn it through good deeds. You can't earn it by being a better person. You can't think that you're just going to turn over another leaf and that God is going to forget all the other things that you've done and you can make your life right. The only way you will ever be acceptable by God is by faith in Christ. And if you ever think that turning back to the law or doing anything that is good will earn you respect from God, you are spitting in the face of that gift. You nullify the grace of God. You cannot be unified to Christ by that. Paul's reasoning, therefore, is clear. If we are justified in Christ, we are united with him in his death, we are united with him in his life, then works have no place in that. Works are completely outside of anything that Paul has said. This is his point. Works don't belong here. This is a whole other realm of thinking. There are no works here. The fact that you believe that you can only be justified by Christ establishes this. I beg of all of us then, therefore, this morning, don't nullify the grace of God. Don't trust in your own resources. Don't trust in your own goodness. Don't trust in your ethnicity, your power, your fame, what people say about you. People lie to you. You're not as nice and you're not as kind as you make everyone else think. You're not as good as you convict, convince yourself that you are. You are a sinner before God. And there is only one way that you might be justified before him, and that is in trusting Christ. As we have already sung this morning, my righteousness is Jesus' life. 
My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. Or just as well as we might sing, and we will sing here in just a second. On the cross he took my sin. By his death I live again. I pray then that these words which we are about to sing might be sung truly and forcefully by his people who know his grace. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful that we are unable to earn anything before you. That our flesh is fickle and weak before you. That we are held under powers that we cannot see or understand. And that the only way to escape these things is by an act of your Son. The only way we might escape the power of sin, the power of the world, the power of the law, the only way we might get out of these things is because Jesus Christ has come and shown himself greater than all of these, that he has paid the debt that we owe, that we might be freed from that. It is only by an act of your word, an act of promise, that we can escape the death that we owe. We pray then, Father, that in your grace to us, you will let us see the glory of Jesus Christ that we might cling tightly to him and be known only by our faith in Jesus Christ. May none of us ever believe that we are better than others because we work for it. All are sinful before you. All deserve your condemnation. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord, we ask that you seal this on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.